Welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm your host, Natasha Mirosh, an insatiably curious food and travel writer who has toured and tasted her way around more than 60 countries. Join me now as I meet the passionate people who make travelling the world so rewarding and so very delicious. Hi there. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Extra Virgin Food and Travel Podcast. Today I'm talking with Veritable Travel Royalty, a name that is synonymous with travel guides. I'm willing to bet that most of us at some stage in our lives have owned a Frommer's Guide. I certainly have. My guest, Pauline Frommer, is the daughter of Arthur Frommer, who established the Frommer's Guides in 1957 with the publication of the seminal Europe on $5 a day. Can you imagine? Since then, Frommers have sold over 75 million guides, covering 350 destinations. Pauline is co-president of Frommer Media with her father. The company publishes Frommers guidebooks and runs the Frommers.com website. Pauline herself is the author of Frommers New York City Day by Day and Frommers Easy Guide to New York City. Not unnaturally, given her background, she's an award-winning travel writer and she's also host of Frommers Travel Podcast. Today we're going to talk everything travel guides, but we're also going to get the lowdown on New York from somebody who's a real local expert. Welcome, Pauline. Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. Pauline, my travelling career started when Frommer's Europe guide was called Europe on $25 a day. I'm intrigued, Pauline, about your family history with the guides. Your dad published the first guide in 1957. He's now 92, I believe. What was his background and what motivated him to write a travel guide? Well, it really was kind of an accident. On the day he graduated from law school, he was drafted into the army. The Korean War was going on. And very luckily, the day before he was going to be sent to Korea with the rest of his troop, his commander discovered that he spoke Russian and German because he was the son of immigrants, came from those two countries. They spoke Yiddish together. And he also studied those languages. So instead of being sent to Korea, which was an incredibly bloody war, in fact, much of his troop didn't make it back. He was sent to Berlin and he started traveling when he had free time. You have to remember Germany or actually not just Germany, but all of Europe was in rubble Mm. still at that point. And his fellow GIs were very nervous about traveling around. They thought wrongly uh, that if you don't have uh, enough money, you won't have a good time. And he was having a good time spending just a couple of dollars a day. So he, every time he'd get back to the barracks, he would be peppered with questions by his fellow GIs. And he thought, well, maybe I'll write a little book. Mm. So he wrote a book called The GI's Guide to Europe. Mm. It sold out the first day it went on sale at the PXs in Europe. And then he got out of the army. And about a year later, he thought, well, maybe civilians will like this. Mm. So he wrote a little book called Europe on $5 a Day, which became the best-selling guidebook of all time and launched the former guides. That's quite a story. He must have uh, a natural curiosity 
Oh, absolutely. And he's always been a brilliant writer. Before he went to law school, he had he had majored in journalism at first. He's always been just a, a really, really uh, brilliant storyteller. Actually, at the law, law firm he worked at, they still show his briefs to young lawyers as, as examples of how to write a compelling law brief. Oh, how wonderful. That obviously set everything in motion and, and the guides. Did you travel with him much as a child? Yes, every summer, starting when I was four months old. Wow. We would go to Europe to update the book. We would spend about two to three months. And this was in the days before there were disposable diapers. This was not easy to do. Uh, in fact, there weren't porta cribs They would push me into a drawer at night and that's where I would sleep. So I spent about a third of my childhood in Europe. I was very blessed. Do you remember your first international trip? I mean, you were obviously very, no, you're was, a baby. What about as a... <laughs> I went so many places before I was at an age where I could remember anything that I have deja vu everywhere. Everywhere feels familiar to me, whether it is or not. What a great feeling to have. What about what's the most challenging or uncomfortable trip you've ever taken? Oh, I once had the misfortune of traveling with a cousin who insisted we take a tour in Italy uh, from Rome out to Tivoli, which is where there there are these ancient Roman ruins. And in Italy, Italy is a country where it's very, very difficult to get a tour guide license. In fact, getting one is called wearing dead man's shoes because there's a limited number and people act as tour guides until they drop dead. And this guy had clearly been a tour guide for way too long. And we were on this god-awful tour. And yeah, I usually love tours, but this mm. just was breaking my heart. He would he would pass a pile of rubble and he would say, and this, uh, this was the ancient library. And I finally started raising my hands and mm. saying, how do we know this was the ancient library? Hoping he'd give us some detail. Mm. And he, he just would say, and that, because that's what they told us. What's wrong with me? <laughs> he was getting angry back at me. Of course, I'm the travel writer. So I was trying to find something I could write about here. And mm. on the in the bus on the way back to Rome, this man in front of me turned to his wife and said, you know, I'm not really loving Italy. It's kind of dull. Oh, and I thought, no. oh God, if, if you've been on these types of tours every yeah. day, yeah, of course you're not loving Italy. Oh, it was that's, heartbreaking. That's sad. I had a similar experience in Venice, actually. It was like the quickest and most shallow tour I've ever been on in my life. And I actually abandoned it halfway through because I thought I've only been here a couple of times, but I know more than this tour guide is telling me already. So. Yeah. It's very interesting. You know, the tour guides will vary greatly. In Italy, you often get real duds. If you go to Israel, the tour guide exam is one of the hardest in the world. It takes like three years just to study to pass that exam. And so it takes such dedication. I've never had a bad tour guide in Israel. In Italy, a number of them, but... That's really interesting. I'm guessing, you know, as a guidebook writer, when your father started out without the internet, things must have been very different and it must have taken a lot of time to write the books and a lot of time on the ground researching. You couldn't just look up where something was. You had to actually just get out there and and walk everywhere and, and, you know, really discover. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he was, he was, 
He was one of the fastest walkers I knew. He would <laughs> run from place to place. But you have to write a guidebook very quickly mm. uh, because things change in the real world so fast. So you have to be a very fast writer. And luckily he is. I think some people are Dickens. You know, Dickens would be able to write a novel in a couple of weeks, whereas other writers are more like Proust. It takes a day to hone the perfect sentence. He was a Dickens. He could write and research at lightning speed and and put out brilliant books. What a great skill to have. I take a very long time to write all of my pieces. I remember being in Hanoi in Vietnam and I met a local at the little hotel I was staying at and he told me that he worked for a guidebook, one of the biggest ones. I won't mention which one it was, but kind of unofficially. So he was subcontracted by the writer and he told me, oh, the writer is very lazy and he doesn't like going out when it's hot. So he sends me out to find out everything and then he comes back and writes it up. And I was just so astounded by this. I stopped using those guidebooks. I was already a little bit of disillusioned by those particular guidebooks because during that trip to Vietnam, I was traveling, I flew into Hanoi and I was traveling south to Saigon. And I kept meeting people who would say to me, oh, you're going the wrong way because the guidebook this particular guidebook started from Saigon. And so everybody was working their way up the country, going to the same places from south to north. But I'm guessing, uh, (laughs) I I think I'm guessing which guidebook it was, but we're very strict. We hire... What, we hire only local writers yeah. and or, or mostly local writers. We have a couple of parachute artists who you can send anywhere and they come up with brilliant material. I used to say we hire the best local magazine journalists or people who write for the best newspapers. Now I have to say we hire the people who used to write yeah. the best local magazines and mm. local newspapers because it's been a bloodbath in I journalism. Hear you. Yeah. So I'm very proud that at the Fromer Guides, we keep a lot of local journalists working and we have in their contracts no subcontracting. <laughs> uh, so I, that doesn't happen with us. Well, thank you on behalf of Journalists Worldwide. Thank you for doing that. Of course. So who are from as readers these days and, and has that changed since your father put out those first guides? Well, yes, of course it's changed. You know, when he put out the first guides, his readers was every his readers were everybody who was traveling because there were no other real sources of information. Now you can go to the internet. I would argue that a lot of what you read on the internet is disguised marketing, you know, at best. And at worst, it's somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about mm-hmm. a lot of the times. I mean, when you go to, say, TripAdvisor to get advice on a hotel, you're taking the advice of somebody who's been to exactly one hotel. Mm-hmm. Whereas our writers have been to all of them mm-hmm. in partic- in the popular neighborhoods, the places you should stay. Because we believe strongly you shouldn't be commuting on on vacation. And so we only pick the hotels that are near the places that visitors want to see. So you're, you're taking the advice from somebody who may not know that right up the road, there's a place that's cheaper and better and more friendly and more interesting design wise. So our, our readers 
tend to be college educated or grad school educated. They, mm-hmm. they tend to be women more than men. We get 60% women, uh, 40% men. Our readers mm-hmm. are 90% Americans. And mm-hmm. we actually write for the Americans because the poor, my poor countrymen get very little vacation time. Mm. So know, unlike Lonely Planet, yeah, Lonely Planet was written for Australians mm. and Australians get much more vacation time. So Lonely Planet is written to cover every single thing you could do in a place. Mm. The Frommer Guides, we are purposefully more curated and we are purposefully hard hitting. So we will say this Mariner Museum has a lot of boats and bottles, which is going to be catnip for some readers, but some people will find it very dull. If you're not a maritime history fan, skip it, because we know our readers have very, very limited times. We try to give them a very curated look. We also try to bring in the zeitgeist of the culture into everything we do. So it's not just thumbs up, thumbs down on our restaurant reviews or our hotel reviews. We try to pick the restaurants and the hotels and the shops and the nightlife spots that really show the culture in some interesting way, whether it's a very traditional restaurant that's been there for hundreds of years or whether it's a hot young chef who is fusing different cuisines in in an interesting way or whether it's a hotel that incident at it or has very typical decor for the region that allows you to feel like you're really in the region rather than just at a multinational chain hotel. Mm. That's that's really fascinating. I'd never thought about the difference. You know, I know Americans travel slightly differently, but I'd never thought of the reason why. But, yeah, the idea that, you know, they have such a, a short... Holidays. Only 35% of Americans even have passports. Mm, that's, as an Australian, that's a very shocking statistic for us whenever we hear that. It's, uh, yeah, quite extraordinary. Pauline, popular opinion would have it that the guidebook is dead, but it's obviously not, is it? We're making a living at it. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not as prominent Uh, as it used to be. But if you think the guidebook is dead, you may think journalism is dead. Sadly, people are getting their information from a whole bunch of different sources Mm. for all parts of life right now. And I would make the same argument for the guidebook that I would make for for journalism in, in general, that when you pick up a guidebook, it's written by somebody who is trained to be a journalist, who knows how to do research, who has done deep research and understands the history, the sociology, the culinary history, the art history, the nightlife trends of the destination in question and you get a deeper, richer preparation for your exploration when you use a guidebook. You're preaching to the converted. I agree 100% with everything that you say. And as somebody who also writes about food, I would say that's very similar to to food writing. I mean, there are hundreds of blogs out there and all kinds of opinions about food, but you know, unless you know that what goes on behind, you're only ever going to get the opinion of a very superficial opinion of, of one person. But Yes, absolutely. Pauline, what's the last country you traveled? That Tanzania. I, I have, I'm embarrassed to say I've only traveled within the U.S. since this damn pandemic, mm. because in our laws say 
that if you get COVID outside the U.S., you cannot return until you have a negative test. Yeah. And the first the first time I got COVID, it took me a good six weeks to have a negative test. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that happens a lot, actually. So I've been very nervous about, uh, but I'm planning to go to England and France in a couple of weeks. But my last trip was Tanzania. Mm. I know it's a trite question, but I feel like Italy is my spiritual home. It's one of the few countries that I go back to. Is there a place in the world that you feel like is your spiritual home? I'm not sure it's my spiritual home, but it felt very important for me to be there when I visited Portugal. I visited it at the height of the Trump administration. Mm. And Portugal, as you may know, had a terrible, terrible dictator, Salazar. In fact, J.K. Rowling, the author of Harry Potter, named one of her evil characters, Salazar Slytherin, against him. And when Salazar was in power, Portugal had an infant death rate that was higher than certain parts of sub-Saharan Africa. Its economy was destroyed. Everything was corrupt. We didn't get to that point in the United States, but I felt like we were on that path (laughs) under Trump. There were a lot of things that were going wrong. And so being in Portugal and knowing how badly it was hurt for 50 years by this dictatorship and then see what a vibrant, forward-looking, wonderful country it is now. It felt very important for me to see that at that time in my life. Mm, Okay. People often mistake work for a holiday. As a travel writer, people imagine that you just swan around and sit by the pool drinking daiquiris. So let's debunk (laughs) that myth. Tell us about your typical day when you're traveling for work, because I'm sure it is exhausting. Yes, my husband calls me the Energizer Bunny. He doesn't like (laughs) to travel with me because I will get up often, you know, right as the sun is coming up so I can walk around and take notes on what I want to go back and visit later. And then, you know, if I'm, well, I usually cover, as I said before, the former guides are written by local authors, but a couple of years back I found I couldn't find a writer in Las Vegas that I really liked. So I went there for a good month and a half to write the book about it. And I stayed in a different hotel every other night. So the back of my car was set up like a chest of drawers and I would just grab clothing to go into the hotel rather than my luggage. And then I would, I would even staying at a different hotel every other night, I couldn't stay in all the hotels. So I would usually see two hotels eat sometimes at two different restaurants, maybe a buffet in a restaurant, go to two attractions in the afternoon, eat again at two places. Yes, I gained weight. (laughs) And then I would go at night to two different shows. And this being Las Vegas, some of them being a a woman, it was a strange show to be at. I remember sitting, taking notes at at a topless show and this person (laughs) sitting next to me going, what are you doing? But, you know, I saw every show in town. I saw how they all stole the jokes from one another and did everything that you could do in Las Vegas over the course of, it took me a month and a half, but it was go, go, go. I can can so relate to that having edited restaurant guides the dining out two or three times a day and the weight (laughs) and I always have to find friends of friends if I can Mm. to dine with me so I can try more things yeah 
Yeah, exactly. It's tough. I just was doing uh, the New York City update and I went, I spent a couple of nights, I think it was about four, doing nightlife, which involved uh, working all day, then taking a disco nap, getting up at 11 and going out until about three in the morning so I could see the dance clubs and the top bars of the city. It's very interesting. Nightlife has really changed here. Mm. I think it has to do partially with the, with the way people meet one another. It used to be you went to clubs and bars to meet the love of your life. Now people are doing that on apps. Mm. And so they have a different bent. I also think coming out of this pandemic, people have trouble talking to one another now. Mm. Mm. So what I found was these bars where you used to just go and have a drink and talk to people, now they're all programmed. Every night there's a trivia game or there's hey. a drag show or there's a uh, some kind of other contest or a, or a magic show. Everything is very programmed now. It's very interesting. Mm, that's, that's very true. What about when you actually go on holiday? Is there such thing in your world? My husband would probably say I never go on holiday. I mean, for 20 years, I did a radio show here in, in the U.S. Unfortunately, it went on hiatus during the pandemic, and I'm trying to get it back, but we'll see. But I always have to talk about my travels So it's never really a full holiday for me, even if I'm not writing an article. And I'm usually writing an article too. Mm. It's hard to to, to not find things of interest and go, oh, I'll just... You know, yeah. go and see this thing. It'll make a great story, isn't it? It's but it doesn't feel like work. I mm. love it. It's not work. Yeah. And Pauline, you are a New Yorker, is that right? Yes, I was born here during a taxi strike, so I was almost born on the subway <laughs> and have uh, lived here ever since. That's a, that's a claim to fame. I know it's extraordinary in this day and age, but I have actually never been to New York. But everybody oh. I know who has been seems to just fall in love with it. I mean, really fiercely love it. What is it about New York? Well, it's partially that it's a very, very worldly city in that one out of every four New Yorkers was born in a different country. So when you come to New York, you see the world here. That's part of it. The other part is, unlike the rest of the United States, we all get around on public transportation. And so I think it's a friendlier city uh, than many other parts. And because this is such a, a place that, you know, there's that song, if you can make it there, I'll make it anywhere. This is where the strivers come. Mm. And so just the level of the arts here and the food experiences and the performances on Broadway and and off-Broadway and in our great concert halls, it's just very, very high. There's just such excellence here. You know, as you can tell, I'm a very proud New Yorker. I love my hometown. Of course, and everybody who lives there seems to feel the same way. Can I fire some quick New York questions at you? Please. What do you think people don't know about New York? I think they don't know that it's it's as friendly as, as it is. You know, everybody here is in a rush. And so if you try to stop somebody on the street and ask for directions, they might keep going. But if you stop and stare at a map 
without saying anything, looking very confused, within 30 seconds, somebody will stop and ask if they can help you. That's really nice. And I would not have expected that. That's very interesting. What about the most overrated experience in New York? What do you think that is? Oh, watching the ball drop in Times Square. (laughs) Uh, uh, I never really got that either, but you know. Yeah. What about the top three free things to do in New York? You know, there are more art galleries in New York City than at, on any other place in the planet. They're all free to visit and they're fa- it's fascinating to go into, the, into Chelsea, the district where they are, and just wander from one to the next. We also have a wonderful free boat ride. It's called the Staten Island Ferry. It takes you from one borough to another, but it gives you a wonderful view of the harbor, of the Statue of Liberty, of the skyline of New York. It's just marvelous. And we also have some of the most innovative parks on the planet. We have one set on an abandoned railway track, another that makes use of what had been the largest sugar refinery in the world. And Central Park is also just wonderful. I know it's it must be very difficult, but do you have a favourite cafe, restaurant or bar? Well, I have favorite for each. There's a lovely place called Cafe Reggio that claims to have brought the first espresso machine to the United States. It's been there since 1918, and it looks like it has been, and the crusty old waiters, wonderful coffee. (laughs) For bar, there's a really fun bar called Please Don't Tell. You go into a hot dog shop, and then you go into an old-fashioned phone booth, and it has a, a fake back. (laughs) And you ring a bell and you get to go behind the fake back into this great bar. They only let enough people, as many people in as they have seats. So it's never too crowded and the cocktails are marvelous. And I have so many restaurants. I don't think I could pick just one. (laughs) That's fair enough. What about a couple of kind of off-piste experiences, you know, unusual things that you can do in New York? We have a very, very large Ukrainian and Russian community in an area called Brighton Beach. And they have these crazy nightclubs where you get served bottles of vodka encased in blocks of ice. And there are showgirls in feathers dancing and comedians telling jokes in Russian. And you get this 10-course feast of very, very heavy food. And then everybody dances till 4 a.m. And you feel like you're in Vladivostok. And instead of New York, I mean, there are so many different communities where you can have these really interesting experiences. That sounds amazing. What about if I'm coming to New York, what, where do you suggest I stay in terms of location? And also, do you have an accommodation recommendation in that location? I think the biggest mistake people make is staying in Times Square, which everybody thinks of as being the heart of the city, but it's, it's crowded, it's noisy, it's overpriced. I say stay where the, where the residents of New York stay. Best places to stay are 24th Street and below. That's where the best restaurants in the city are or in Brooklyn. And there's a wonderful, I hate to say it because it's a chain, but it's a small chain, the Freehand Hotels. They took over a historic old hotel. And the nice thing is they have very small rooms 
but they only allow singles to stay in them and they truly charge a singles rate. So if you're a solo traveler, you'll pay much less there than you will in other parts of the city. And it's it's a great place to stay. You're within walking distance of a lot of great restaurants. That's fantastic. And finally, is there like one, I know you've given us heaps of information, but is there one inside a New York tip? Oh, my tip is do what we try to do in our guidebook, which is pick one area of the city per day rather than trying to zigzag and see different parts. You want to be able to slow down and really enjoy the places where you are. And it may look like it's not that vast a place, but each neighborhood is so rich and so dense with things to do uh, that if you can plan an itinerary geographically, you'll get much more out of the experience. Do you have an app that you use or some kind of secret to, you know, when you obviously have such a complex itinerary as you would have, how do you keep it all together? I just, I, I make notes. I, I, I'm still a pen and paper person. So I have I love uh, a little notebook with, with the places I want to see. And I take uh, guidebooks and I treat them with utter disrespect, by which I mean <laughs> I rip them. <laughs> I still prefer having pen and paper and, and printed material rather than having to scroll through apps. Okay. That's fair enough. So what's the future for print guides in general and, and for From Us as a company? Well, we are, we've all, we've long been more than just print guides. I mean, Fromers.com, the website was one of the very first travel websites. We get, wow. about, 4 million, we get about 4 million unique users per month, about 14 million page <gasps> views. All of our guidebook material is up there. That's the big secret. It's supported by advertising, not in the text, next to the text. Hmm. And, uh, so we have we have that. We've been doing walking tours on apps with the company. There are many ways that we we hope to expand, but we know that there's still a big audience for paper guidebooks. And our guidebooks are also, I should say, available as ebooks. So you can get them on your devices. But we're doubling down on journalism. It's something that's important to us. And and we're, as I said at the very start of this interview, we take it seriously that we're keeping a lot of journalists around the world afloat uh, and we want to be able to keep giving them work. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Well, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you and I could extend this podcast probably by another hour because it's just, (laughs) just such a rich treasure of information so thank you so much for making the time i know that it's uh, you're always very busy so i really appreciate you you doing that well it's been a pleasure and thank you so much i appreciate the, the fun conversation thank you well that's it for another episode of extra virgin thank you as always for your company and i love to know that you're listening so please do feel free to drop me an email at extravirgin at gmail.com or say hi on Instagram or Facebook. And if you like the podcast, please do share it with your friends. Until next time, bon voyage and bon appétit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. You can get more great food and travel inspiration, including stories, recipes, reviews, and more on our website, www.extravirginfoodandtravel.com. 
You can also follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook or email us at extravirginfoodandtravel at gmail.com. If you haven't already, go to Apple, Spotify or Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to download and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until we meet again, bon voyage and bon appétit.